0: Hi, welcome to Dr. C and the D and I'm Dr. Carol Kowalczyk with my associate, Dr. Nicole Boudries. And we did a podcast recently when IVF fails part one, what's next, kind of talking about egg quality and embryos and whether they're normal or not and, and reading from that and figuring out what to do next. But in this segment, we're gonna talk about, well, wait a minute, what about implantation? Uh, so what can we do, Nicole, um, if we're worried about how the embryo implants and if it implanted
1: well I first off, can I just say that pregnancy is a really complicated coordinated dance between the embryo and the maternal environment in the uterus so um, the most likely reason that an embryo wouldn't implant and grow is that there are too many or too few chromosomes in that embryo. so now with the testing that we can do the pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy if we, are doing that and we know we're putting in a normal embryo, then we start to look at other factors like the lining of the uterus. We look at, are there polyps or fibroids? So sometimes we will do testing, whether it's in the office with a, an ultrasound we put fluid inside the uterus, or if we find something, then we would, we can go in and remove that or look for smaller reasons for that.
0: And that's important because if there's something inside the uterus, like a polyp or a fibroid, uh, in the cavity, that can decrease your chance of success up to fifty percent. So it's important that we identify that that cavity is actually clear and normal and smooth. But uh, you're right; one of them is is what's going on with the uterine uh, lining and with the the actual cavity itself. Um, what about the tubes? We are ever worried about tubes being a problem. I mean, we already have the embryos, so why would we care? Absolutely. So with a dilated
1: fallopian tube where there's fluid that accumulates in that tube, it's almost like a pair, of, a, a pair of jeans that gets worn out and it gets stretched out. And it just is able to accommodate fluid. So that fluid can then reflux or go back into the, the inside of the uterus. And if you put an embryo there, that fluid can be toxic or harmful. So having a dilated fallopian tube can decrease pregnancy success by about 50%. So we would want to know that. And if we were found to have a dilated fallopian tube, oftentimes we're recommending that those be removed or occluded
0: or blocked some way prior to putting an embryo in. Right, and then, so it's important that we we check on that. And there's certain things in your history uh, that may make, us uh, suspicious of a hydro uh, developing. And that would be things like if you had a previous ectopic pregnancy or meaning a pregnancy stuck in your tube, if you had a previous pelvic infection like chlamydia or gonorrhea, that can really develop into uh, damaging that tube and cause this condition called hydrosalpines. If you had any kind of surgeries in your pelvis, like you had fibroids or you had uh, a, a cyst removed or a ruptured cyst, then there could be scar tissue that could impact the tube and then later cause Uh, dilatation. And then the other thing is endometriosis. Now, endometriosis is a condition. We don't always, we don't know exactly how it happens. There's several theories, but the most common theory is that when women have their periods, some of that menstrual flow goes back up into the the, uh, tubes and then it does not go away, sticks in the pelvis and hormones later Uh, in subsequent cycles, stimulate those little implants. So that in and of itself can have some impact with scar tissue and, and the endometriosis in affecting the tubes. But endometriosis can affect implantation too, though, right, Nicole? Oh, absolutely. So it's thought that that inflammation inside
1: the pelvis can make it less likely than embryo would implant and grow. So we do have some if we know someone already has endometriosis so we can see on the ovary that there's an area that's suspicious for endometriosis or they've had prior surgery or testing that's shown that then oftentimes we can do things that can help suppress or kind of like tamper down that inflammation prior to putting the embryo in so that would be one way that we can do it but for patients who might not know that they have endometriosis there's even, there's a a newer test that we can use. It's called Receptiva, where it looks for markers in the lining of the uterus that can be associated
0: with that. So that is something that uh, we talk to patients about all the time. Right. And with this Receptiva, if this marker is negative or good, but if it's positive, then we've got a couple choices of giving a medication to kind of suppress the hormones, to then suppress the endometriosis and inflammation, but also if we did not know a patient had endometriosis um, then there would be potentially the role for surgery called a laparoscopy, a belly button surgery, where we actually look to see is there endometriosis? What do the tubes look like? Um, is there other things going on in that pelvis and then, you know, treat it accordingly. So, you know, there are tools that we could use to identify potential reasons why there'd be inflammation in the uterine cavity. Uh, Anything else you can think of?
1: Well, I know uh, patients will come and ask about, there's some newer tests out. There's um, something called the endometrial receptivity assay that patients have asked about where it's looking to see is the lining of the uterus um, at the stage that matches up with the embryo. And I think one of the things that we went to a conference recently that they talked about was, you know, the window for an embryo to implant is up to five days. And that this probably, this likely doesn't really affect, this, this test really isn't isn't helpful in determining the exact time that we're going to place an embryo, and so I think that's something that we're we have we talk to patients about, but um, we're not using nearly as much as, as they we used, used to. to. Right, yeah, right. And then there's the Alice and Emma assay, which mm-hmm. is looks at the endometrial microbiome. So these are tests that um, most likely that I think are really intriguing, but when you look at well, how does that? factor into actually, does it make sense that I think the data is leaning away from,
0: from the use of those? Right. And so, you know, and those tests are expensive, right? So they're thousands of dollars and, you know, 85 to 90% of the time it comes back normal. And when they did meta-analyses, which means that they take smaller studies and if they had similar ways that it's done, they put the data together to make a stronger, um, result. Uh, they're finding that clinically it's not been as helpful as we've all been hoping it was going to be. So, um, so that's something with uh, implantation that I think we're still learning, Nicole, I think we're still learning, you know, what are some factors, what are some other things we can add, Mm -hmm. you know, to the treatment plan to make the uterus more receptive. So uh, I think that, you know, we've covered a lot of the basics. And is there anything else you can think of to add to this? Well, I think that just like with any,
1: with anything in fertility that, you know, our overall health can play a role. So certainly, you know, making sure we're the healthiest version of ourselves at the time that we, that we're doing the embryo transfer. Um, so some of the things are a plant-based diet, eating very healthy, um, stress relief, stress control. Those are all things that I think are, are
0: helpful. Right. So Hopefully that uh, will give you a little more insight as to what we think about when there's implantation failures and uh, looking forward to giving you more fertility information next time. This is Dr. Carol Kowalczyk on Dr. C and the D.